Welcome to Talking Infrastructure, the fortnightly podcast brought to you by global infrastructure company, ACOM. In this series, we'll be discussing the hot topics, key projects and innovations that are helping to solve some of the world's most complex infrastructure challenges. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Talking Infrastructure podcast. My name is James Banks and I'm head of external relations in Europe, the Middle East and Africa for ACOM. Today's podcast is focusing on transport-orientated development, the idea of developing and optimising the land around our transport hubs. And now, sadly, my regular co-host, Roma Agrawal, can't be here today to help me steer through this topic. But never fear, I have two fantastic guests with me to discuss this subject. Firstly, you heard him chuckling there, we have ACOM's Director, Advanced Structures, Mike Pawley. Good morning. Morning, Mike. Uh, based here in our Oldgate office, Mike and his team work with major public stakeholders and private developers on transport-orientated development projects and stations mainly across London. With almost 30 years' experience in the construction industry, Mike has worked on HS2, Crossrail, the Jubilee Line extension, as well as numerous station upgrades and capacity development projects. And our second guest is Jonathan Bray. Jonathan has been the director of the Urban Transport Group since 2008. He is also a visiting senior fellow at LSE Cities, a commissioner on the Commission on Travel Demand, and a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Highways and Transportation. In January 2019, he co-authored the report, The Place to Be, which examines how transit-orientated development can support good growth in the city regions and meet housing need without undermining the green belt or creating more traffic congestion and sprawl. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, good morning. So, gentlemen, first of all, what is TAOD? What is transport-orientated development, transit-orientated development? What are we talking about? So transport-oriented development is in some ways a loose term uh, that can define many things. I think there's some good examples that we can maybe raise to get people to understand this about transport-oriented development in the immediate vicinity of stations and their surrounds, uh, where land is taken to put new infrastructure in place, either through the actual physical station or adjacent construction sites. That is, is an immediate term of, of transport-oriented development. Some examples in London, you could say Dalston is a very good example. Um, we've put 19 storey buildings directly on top of the station there. Shoreditch has, has got a box over it to enable that whole area to be transport-oriented development um, as a project. And then you've got the Crossrail stations that are all, or nearly all of them, are enabled to have buildings put on top of the stations. Jonathan, obviously you've, you've come down today from, from up north, from, from York. It's not just a London thing. I mean, I, I could argue here that we're so close to, everywhere's so close to transport hubs that almost anything could be transport-orientated development here in London. I mean, what do you, how do you define it? How do you look at it, not just in London, but in the wider UK and across the world? Well, I think it's easiest in the larger cities, but transit-orientated development, which um, we've used, we've, we've taken from the Americans, because mm. anything the Americans do is, is cool. <laughs> but really, it, it, it's quite a simple idea. It's just planning housing and, and transport and development together. And in, in Britain, we've done it for a long time. I mean, Metroland is a classic example. Uh, and cities traditionally have expanded alongside their public transport networks. And transit-orientated development is, is something we certainly need more of if we're going to tackle the housing crisis in a way that doesn't create more congestion, more sprawl, more problems on air quality, more problems on carbon. You mentioned the housing crisis. I mean, this 
clearly we are, especially here in London, people are looking for extra space to build on. Is TOD part of the solution? Is, could it be the solution? Yeah, it is part of the solution. Certainly since the current uh, mayor came in, housing has been the direct driver for transport-oriented development for Transport for London. They have a lot of estate, 5,400 acres, and they are looking to commercialise that. And with the current mayor, that's a housing agenda. And we are seeing uh, a lot of sites coming out through various initiatives that Transport for London have had to provide housing. They have a deadline of uh, March 2021 to deliver 10,000 houses uh, actually being built for Londoners. And uh, we're part of that initiative to try and provide those houses to Londoners across the UK. Network Rail has a similar agenda through um, Homes England to, to try and provide housing on Network Rail land. And as Jonathan says, if, if you look at it, transport-oriented development at infrastructure locations, you don't get people having to travel to the station. So there's benefits in terms of a healthy streets agenda, lowering carbon, lowering pollution through transportation to develop at stations. So there is actually quite a lot of land available to do this on. I mean, there is. I tend to think if you said to me, look, we're going to build around transport hubs, where are you going to squeeze in the odd house? But you're saying that there's actually quite a lot of land available. There's lots of land available. The challenge is that that land can be difficult land. So we have uh, peers in our consultancy uh, environment that have written lots of reports about how you can deliver housing for Londoners. The, the difficulty with it is, is the cost to build on some of the land because it's so expensive. Uh, what we look at, and as you broaden out transport-oriented development to transport-related development, you look to capture land and value that isn't on land that's hard to develop and create something that actually is financially viable. So, Jonathan, you mentioned this isn't an, a new concept. Why are we talking about it now? Why does it, it seems to have, over the last couple of years, really come to the front again? Are we just rebadging something and getting excited about something we've been doing for years? Uh, in a way, we are rebadging it, but I think it's an idea that as time has come. I think there was a period, perhaps under the Eric Pickles regime, where planning was a bad thing. Planning was an obstacle. It was all about letting development rip. And that's changed. And I think partly it's been what's been happening around some of the major railway terminals, uh, what's been happening around HS2. Uh, there are some big land sites, at prime locations, right next to big stations, and there are some big plans for that. I mean, in York, I live very near to one, the old railway lands around York Station, and there's a big plan for development there. So it's, it's an idea that that's time has come, and I think there'll be more behind it now because, obviously, the B word is dominating <laughs> uh, the wider <laughs> political debate. But if there is one policy area that has some life in it outside of that, it is the housing crisis. There is a recognition that we need to uh, step up on the housing crisis. In some ways, the housing crisis is not new. We've had it for a long time, but it's become more politically uh, prescient. So I think the combination of the realisation we could do more about around these very large stations and the housing crisis has given the, the concept of transit-orientated development a new lease of life. Yeah, you, you mentioned the B word. There's also the F word, which is um, which is finances. So we live in a sort of recession environment, and the government is is reducing the funding for our infrastructure. Uh, we we seem to think that infrastructure should be able to pay for itself in this country, and the diminishing support of Transport for London and Network Rail is driving them to find or need commercial opportunities to provide non-fair revenue. That's certainly driven Transport for London Network Rail to seek out these ways that they can commercialise their estates to therefore fund the infrastructure and keep fares low. 
I think the other thing that's been going on, which is a factor, is that people actually want to live in denser urban areas. When they did, say, in the 80s, the cities were being evacuated, mm. people moving out to the suburbs, people wanted to move their businesses to out-of-town locations on orbital roads. And we've seen a, a big reversal of that, particularly younger people. They want to live in cities. Large companies like Google, they don't want to be buried alive uh, with excellent car parking on the ring roads, or they want to be in King's Cross in a transit-oriented development. And this is happening right around the world. Interesting, in America, right. we always think of the US as somewhere that's very car-focused, and in many ways it still is. But similar trends around people wanting to locate in cities uh, are happening all around the world and in secondary cities as well too. So I think that's a, another big driver. People want this stuff. They don't necessarily want to be buried alive on a, a peripheral trading estate or a business park. There must be some pollution. We look now clearly, I would imagine that our transport hubs are becoming less polluted. You know, I mean, when I first moved to London, not rather naively, I had a flat on Putney High Street, which turned out to be one of the most polluted streets in London. <laughs> uh, yeah, opposite the, the bus depot, right next to the station. And to be honest, it wasn't particularly pleasant living there. But surely as we be, you know, lower emissions, that makes it more feasible. People will be keen to move to transport hubs as opposed to being close but not too close. Yeah, if we move away from train or, or metro transport-oriented development maybe and, and discuss things like buses, this, this land portfolio that you see the, the public realm owning does include vast bus depots. And uh, recently, the concept of moving all the buses to electric buses changed the, the pollution environment that you might see at bus depots and creates new opportunities. So we are aware of, of the concept of making these bus depots last mile venues and also putting all the last mile vehicles onto electric so that you can charge your car there and it makes a, a build over solution a lot easier so the release of all of those those bus depot areas to maybe put housing on and put charge points last mile points can address this, the healthy streets agenda that we're seeing in london and and in the broader sense as well and i think this you'll know more about it than i do as an engineer but this build over this rafting over yeah could be a big breakthrough i know it's happening i think it's happening isn't it at euston on hs2 yes there's one uh, over the dlr i think and yeah. network rail are looking at more yeah i mean i think there can be concerns about how disruptive it can be when you're building them yeah but clearly this this raft over concept could be a big breakthrough yeah. if you look at somewhere like hong kong where they do this stuff on an enormous scale i mean they've got 100 story blocks over uh, transit systems and and the systems they've got there are all paid for by property mm. or fares but mostly property as far as yeah. i can see yeah. Yeah. so they're doing it on an, an enormous scale but i think it's not, maybe not on that scale here but there, there seems to be a lot of potential there that's right and the get to deck concept this producing a deck on which you build is the solution in some ways but it's also the prohibitor in that its costs generally tend to make things too expensive to do that's why you see transport-oriented development more in the big cities where land value is high and that allows you to afford to put the deck in and create the, the space that you can build on and, and as you quite rightly say MTR Hong Kong is one of the world-class examples of oversight development and that's the model that's being created that allows the operator of the rail to also be a developer it's not something we have here people believe the network rails, the transport for London, Greater Manchester, they're there to operate a safe railway, to give you on-time trains. They shouldn't really be confusing their, their agenda by delivering housing. So there's a political discussion to be yeah. had there. But if you were to free them up to become strongly commercially oriented, then they could deliver 
that MTR solution, um, you also then have to consider the densification that you're going to need to achieve some of these housing targets that we see being set for London, for Manchester, for Birmingham. Uh, and presumably, by commercialising some of their property, it does mean that they might be able to take some of the burden away from the commuters. Uh, you know, we all see every, every January the, the rail fares get increased and I see you've got the, the, the ACOM future infrastructure report that we put out earlier this year saying that actually people here in London, uh, they're, they're willing to pay higher taxes rather than higher fares to see improvements in their infrastructure. But they shouldn't be having to do that. It should be better ways of doing it. Is this a better way for people, for, as you say, the TFLs and network rails to, to fund improvements and, and maintenance so that it, it takes away from higher fares? I think it's as, as well as. I don't think it will ever be the solution because it, it's a drop in the ocean. You look at the, the amount it costs to run rail infrastructure. It, it's so big that um, the amount you'll get back from housing, because you'd want it to be affordable as well, um, is never going to replace other means or needs to fund our railways. But it does provide solutions in terms of reduction of commuting, putting people at the heart of places they can get away from, get to other places. It looks like a win-win when you mm. when you look at it in the round of what it can achieve. But there's just a journey I think we're going on to get people to realise that they should allow this infrastructure and these infrastructure operators to develop on their land. I, th- I think there is a challenge, though, around the, the quality of transit-orientated development we get. Yeah. Because there is a danger that um, if you're just trying to raise money, you build a lot of luxury flats and half of them are empty when you walk yes. around at night because housing is now financialised. It's just the vertical state of deposit boxes, aren't they? Yes. Rather than homes and communities. And you can see, I think, some of this with perhaps some of the stuff that Network Rail does. It's very hard-nosed. It's all chain stores, luxury flats. Yes. There's no individuality. The social element can be missing. Yeah. So it's how we strike the balance of getting more transit-oriented development, but good transit-oriented development. Yeah. And when you go to somewhere like the Netherlands and see the best of what they achieve, yeah. you start to feel rather envious because they have the quality there, they have the mixed use, yeah. and they have the uh, what feels like they're building communities rather than uh, financialization of, of property. And that's interesting because the agenda that we're seeing coming through now, and I believe it's government-driven, is social value where there's a strong requirement for social value to be considered in the development that is being progressed through transport-oriented development. So social value, making the communities within which you're putting new infrastructure in, making them a voice and considering what what the impact is of them, and also thinking about what you deliver. Is, Is that the correct social value? Or are you just lining pockets of people who are coming and making money out of this but not actually adding to the communities that they're buying within. So when it comes to, okay, we're we're, we're going to come up with a transport-oriented development. What's going to go into that development? How does it look? Presumably, at least transport hubs, they are expanding. There needs to be a bit of wiggle room around around them. So how do we build and make sure that they're they're not going to get torn down 10 years later when we suddenly need an extra platform, et cetera. How does that, was that, is that a complicated question? I don't know. It's interesting, and it's in some ways what prevents transport-oriented development from moving ahead quickly is you have the infrastructure operator part of, of a TFL or a network rail, and they, exactly as you say, they want to safeguard for future expansion and don't want something built on top that would prohibit something being expanded to deal with the increase of commuting on their infrastructure. But, but that would then prohibit this oversight occurring. We, we've seen it on some of the projects we've worked on. You can safeguard 
to allow expansion of the infrastructure, but it does then start to increase the cost of the, the get-to-deck arrangement and what you can build on top. I, th- I think in terms of sustainable transport-oriented development, mixed use is beneficial if you create a singular entity that is only residential. What do those people do? Where do they go to do their shopping, to do their, their, their socialising? So thinking about having retail community elements at these places or work elements as well. Why, why do you need to travel to go to work? Why don't you just go downstairs and have your community built around a piece of infrastructure? I think, as transport authorities, we would say this, but I think the public sector can play a key role in holding the ring to ensure you get that quality. Uh, I think King's Cross is a good example of that. Anyone who wanders around that, I think, would say this is a pretty good development. It works. It's a good place to be. Uh, but that was partly because we had the public sector playing a key role in ensuring you got the quality, not just who came first with the most money. But we do have some challenges there, particularly outside of London, where you've got planning departments that just don't have the capacity because of wider local government cuts. Um, I think we've also slipped into a world of planning that's very much about uh, regulatory frameworks and a kind of defensive, process-driven approach to planning rather than the placemaking. And again, going to, um, when I was in Amsterdam, went to Eiberg, which is a new, I hope I've pronounced that right, uh, which is a new housing development that they've built out of the sea with a tram that goes right down the spine of it. And when you go there, certainly all the buildings have a a kind of house feel to them. They're not madly clashing, uh, but a lot of work has also gone within that to get an individuality. There's a nice place for family homes, there's a good place for flats, and the whole thing kind of works. It's not spectacular and showy, We're good at doing spectacular and showy in the UK. We're perhaps not so good at doing good ordinary, which is what the Dutch are very good at and probably what people actually want as places to live. But that was also because they had the public sector resource to hold the ring. They put a lot of work and had a lot of planning capacity to manage that process and to ensure that they got the mix right. And I think that's one of the things we struggle with. And I think you can see that. I mean, if you go to the Docklands area, which is transit-oriented development in the way, there's DLR everywhere, it's pretty bleak, in my opinion, a lot of it. You don't see any people, there's no shops, just big towers of flats. This, to me, may be transit-oriented development, but I don't think they're particularly good places to be, a lot of them. So I think this need for, uh, and it's not easy in the current climate, to build up our capacity in the public sector to hold the ring to ensure we get the quality. Yeah, I recognise what you're saying is that the Move East has has created this residential block that has little sustainable about it in terms of a community service and really it's just people going home and then coming back in again and uh, it does need to be thought of better in making communities around infrastructure as opposed to it just being a, a drain of housing that's being um, shoved up with with not much else. Yeah, and I think we need to include the sustainability aspect. You know, yeah. in Britain, we're not. There's a recent report by the Climate Change Commission around the housing stock, how poor it is in terms of efficiency. Uh, and are we building into new developments the kind of things we need around climate resilience, around low energy, around turbines and solar panels? Are we doing that as well? Because I think the danger is, in 10 years' time, we may look back and these places, once the glosses come off, uh, what are they going to feel like? Yeah, certainly. There's, there's another sustainable element, I suppose, which is the construction industry. How can the construction industry deliver the housing, the transport-oriented development? And what we're seeing through, through what we do and what the industry is doing is moving towards a modular solution that works very well 
as, as an engineer on transport-oriented development if you're building over infrastructure just because of the, the method of construction, the loading, the way that modular works is very complementary to building on top of rail infrastructure. And that could be a way that we can move the agenda forward in creating quality through factory-built products. Also, to deal with the lack of capacity in the construction industry to build out housing and also just this, the fit of building on top of a station. And presumably working in those tighter spaces you know, off-site is, is well suited for that. It's great, it's great. Yeah. Once you've put your deck in, you don't, you're not building live on top, you're, you're dropping things in uh, that have been prefabricated products, the quality's there and it, it makes it a simpler solution. Now, clearly, I'm not an engineer, but does that also mean that there's a sort of flexibility about, you know, what if TfL suddenly need that land back? Or yeah, you're, so you're talking about the meanwhile sites agenda, and that is something that certainly in, in London we're seeing where land is safeguarded for future infrastructure, but it remains it sits dormant, and there's funding with the Greater London Authority to develop meanwhile site solutions where you create modular. Housing, it could be temporary housing to get people off the streets that we've, we've worked in Lewisham with, with Lewisham Council to build temporary modular homes, bring people off the streets, bring families together in quality housing until they can move into permanent social housing. And that solution that we have down there can be moved. And we know that Transport for London, GLA and local authorities are all looking to come together to address that challenge with a modular solution. Jonathan, looking outside London, I'm trying to make sure this isn't too London-centric. <laughs> um, what's the appetite like in, in the other you know, major cities in the UK? What are the metro mayors saying? Are they, are they driving this forward? Well, I think the Green Belt is held very dear by many people and many voters, which is also another driver towards concentrating things within the existing uh, urban footprint. But I think it's good news potentially for rail. People are generally dissatisfied with the quality of public transport in many of the cities in the UK come to a head in the north around all the performance problems there's been. There's clearly a need for more investment. But I think that if we are going to tackle the housing crisis without expanding into the green belt, if we're going to do that without creating a lot more sprawl and traffic congestion, if we're going to do that without worsening air quality and increasing carbon, then it's got to be rail. It's got to be concentrating development around rail stations. So the advantage of the rail is clearly you can get more people into the city centre, but you can also extend commuting ranges further out. You've also got opportunities to do new developments around stations, as we've just been discussing. Uh, and there are also a lot of brownfield sites next to railway lines, either former railway lands or former industry. A good example from Leeds is Kirkstall Forge, where a station, unusually for, for the UK, we put it in pretty early rather than do the development first and then put the station in. And that's already exceeding the patched forecasts around office development and housing development on what was the Kirkstall Forge which was a major industrial site that is no longer there. So there's huge opportunities. And I say this is how cities have always grown. This is how London grew. It grew around its rail network. So I think it makes a strong case for further rail investment in the other cities. And not just kind of incremental, let's just replace two old trains with two new trains, but something much more substantial, more of a vision around how we want those city regions to develop, which in turn will help uh, rebalance the economy and also help help I think some of the the towns because we've got this big issue around a lot of the concentration has been on the core cities and there's a good case for that 
a lot of those courses is now Manchester, Liverpool, transformed places from what they had been. A lot of the towns and the surrounding urban conurbations are uh, not so transformed and have struggled. So by plugging more of those places into the rail network, linking them in, I think uh, you can help uh, those places as well. And I, I think I totally agree. And there are other examples. So you've got the Northern Powerhouse thinking about joining up know across the leads through Manchester and we've looked at those and, and seen there's there's absolute opportunity to develop around the rail infrastructure if it gets put in to join cities together to allow people to get around and work as, a, as an entity through being joined up on infrastructure the Midlands are looking at it as well and then you've got the Camcox the Cambridge to, to Oxford Milton Keynes uh, railway infrastructure that just its concept is creating um, regeneration in Milton Keynes High speed two, you're seeing Birmingham going, you know, people are just looking to Birmingham now in terms of developers and people who can't afford to live in the current major cities uh, going to Birmingham and creating a new destination in that part of the um, country. It all sounds fantastic. You know, we can solve the housing crisis, we can reduce pollution. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Incredible. What's stopping it? What, What are the barriers? I think we've mentioned a couple of them, but what? What do we need to, need to do to make this, this happen and be adopted? I mean, we, we came up with five things. Always good to have a list of five. Um, some of which we talked about. I think part of it is increasing the capability and capacity of local government planning to take advantage of these opportunities. We also need a national planning framework that supports and steers us towards more transit-orientated development rather than towards sprawl. Uh, We must surely put an end to an era where we can be building new housing estates without pavements, new housing estates which buses cannot serve because the street layout will not allow that. Surely to God, in a climate crisis, we need to put an end to that kind of thing with a more supportive planning framework. The third thing is around how we capture the value that we create by improving public transport. So you see this time and time again, if you put in better rail services, and it's not just London, London is a, is a very good example of it, but Birmingham, we've seen a huge growth in land values and huge growth in rail commuting into Birmingham, all interlinked. But how do we capture the value of that to pay for that rail investment in the first place? There are big challenges around the issues of land value capture, which uh, would make a, a whole podcast of itself, probably with someone who has more expertise <laughs> than me, yeah. perhaps a different audience. But uh, there's clearly an issue where we are, where we are creating value New public transport links do create value, but we're not necessarily capturing that to pay for those transport links. And we need to push forward with the mechanisms that are out there that may enable us to do that, recognising that some of this is very politically sensitive. And we're not Hong Kong in that in Hong Kong there's more new land, the government owns the land. We've got a much more uh, historic and and dense build-up of of buildings and different types of property owners to deal with. So... uh, just working as a way quickly through the list, the other, the other two points we've said is around stations. Uh, we think that transport authorities could do more with stations if they had more control over them. With the railways, you've got a franchising system, so the people who have the lease for a lot of the stations only have that for seven, ten years. might seem a long time for operations. It's not long enough for them to take a long view of the potential of those stations, particularly the, the smaller stations. Uh, Network Rail, as discussed, is doing some good stuff, but to what extent it's really plugging that into the communities that they serve. 
question mark. So more of a role over, over stations. And I think also we would like more control over some of the, or more influence over some of the decisions of the government agencies, going back to network rail. The Scottish government can veto, has the powers of veto over a network rail developments on major sites. And we think we would like that too, because veto gives you a good negotiating position. And that's what the Scottish government has enabled them to drive uh, developments which are closer to what the Scottish government is trying to achieve for Scotland as a whole. So I'll, all of those raise some big uh, discussion <laughs> topics, but I'll stop there. Yeah. OK, um, I agree. I agree with um, much of what you said. And I think we need political pushing for this to see it as being a, a solution for it and for it to be supported. Uh, that would then uh, have public support as well. Um, let, let the public see that this allowing infrastructure operators and owners to develop is being beneficial to them in the longer term. The longer term view is the big thing as well. A lot of these opportunities get caught with short term views. We need, like the National Infrastructure Commission advocates, take it out of the political cycles and let's, let's plan this in a much longer term way and see this as being a combination of improved infrastructure, improved housing and quality design, you would always say. Let's, let's have some good quality design that doesn't allow something in 5, 10, 15 years to look like an eyesore or be not fit for purpose. The value capture thing, yeah, that's for another day. It's a challenge. So, for an example, Baker Line extension that uh, we hope is, is coming out to market this year. And that's going to deliver 100,000 homes for Londoners. But the ability to pay for it is diminishing by the day because developers already are aware of its existence, it's coming to market. And so the land is being acquired and the, and the ability to capture that value is diminishing every day. And we need to do something. And there's a series of acronyms as long as you're armed. <laughs> DRAMs and SILs are the different ways you can do this. No, nobody has a solution. There isn't an ideal solution at the moment as to how you capture value. But, but something needs to be devised that at least provides a level of input to infrastructure that makes it affordable. And so I think we've touched on it, but who needs to drive this change? Is it, is it politicians need to drive this? Is it from the very top? Well, I, I think, I mean, London, and I agree, there are still real challenges, but there has been successful land value capture mm. here. We see TfL really getting stuck in the Mayor of London in terms of using TfL's land assets and mm -hmm. stations That's to right. develop housing. I mean, I saw a presentation recently and I didn't realise the scale of it. It's very impressive and it's moving at pace. But the hand that local government and city regions play outside London is much weaker uh, and much weaker than counterparts in the Netherlands and in Germany. So you've got an unequal, well, is battle the right word? I don't know. But certainly the developers uh, have a stronger position. So I think it's something around also the nature of the politics we have in this country around it being pretty centralised. And we need to empower particularly the city regions, to have more capacity and more powers to deliver transit-oriented development. But that requires a national planning framework that's supportive, and it requires the government to get behind the fiscal measures to push forward on the different mechanisms of land value capture. Not to tell cities, and therefore you should do this, but to give them more tools that they can use to realise more of these opportunities. Given the scale of the, the crisis, the multiple crises we face around air quality, around climate and around housing. I, I think there is a, there's a need for it to be politically driven, but I think in some ways it's really down to us, isn't it, as, as the people that understand this opportunity to lobby and educate and show with some vision 
what you can achieve in terms of solving urban crises of housing or pollution. We're the the learned, the knowledgeable ones, and we need to get out there and tell these people that with a bit of long-term thinking, there's some great opportunities to deliver future infrastructure and future housing. Great. I think that is an excellent place to end uh, this morning's podcast. So thank you very much, Mike Pauley, Jonathan Bray, for for joining me this morning. I will be back in a couple of weeks' time, hopefully with Roma, for another episode of Talking Infrastructure. Until then, take care and goodbye.